0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College.
1: And I'm Netta Megbule from the University of Toronto.
0: We're on the web, sociocast.org slash Annex, on Twitter, at SocAnnex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we have a very special treat, Bart Bonikowski from Harvard University, Barter is a leading expert on nationalism and populism with a long list of terrific papers on the topic. He's probably best known for his 2016 article in the American Sociological Review, Varieties of American Popular Nationalism with Paul DiMaggio, but he's got a bunch of great articles. Uh, The Populist Style of American Politics, 2016 and Social Forces, Ethno-Nationalist Populism and the Mobilization of Collective Sentiment, The British Journal of Sociology, 2017. There's tons. We're gonna talk about politics, popular disaffect, identity, social movements, and a lot more. You're not gonna wanna miss this. So yesterday, uh, we're recording on January 31st today, there was talk of a bipartisan effort to end government shutdowns. Basically, they're proposing that if lawmakers can't reach an agreement on spending, they're going to institute mechanisms that will automatically fund parts of the government. So, a whole debate about this. First off, I don't think we talked about the shutdown in general. Uh, wh- what were your reactions to this, this whole shutdown? Nadia, do you want
1: to go first? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> well, it was uh, I was kind of craning my neck from up here in Canada uh, because, yeah. as one of the Americans of Canadian sociology, it's been interesting to see my my home country devolve in a myriad number of ways. And so, the shutdown was the most recent thing that I was just you know refreshing Google constantly to see what new calamity befell my home country right everything from like um national forests getting ransacked right something like joshua tree through of course the different kinds of um issues that it's created for many many categories of federal workers so it was um it was something that i was aware of and keeping track of from up here in canada but i have a sense that perhaps you guys felt the brunt of this maybe more than i did
0: Wait, Nada, before we switch, uh, what, what were they saying up there about it? How were they presenting it?
1: Uh, as a foreshadowing of the future that we'll have with <laughs> Doug Ford and the rest of the
0: <laughs> cast of
1: characters who are, who are really emerging as like populist heroes up here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just for those who don't know, in Ontario, the Ontario Premier, Premier, which is like the equivalent of a governor, is a Trump-style politician who is brother of the famed uh, crack smoking uh, mayor of Toronto Rob Ford, but anyhow, that's for another episode. Bart, what was your take? How'd you react to the uh, the shutdown?
2: Well, I think there are two dimensions to it. On one hand, there was the, the human cost of shutting down the government. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. shutdown revealed just how precarious federal jobs are, and yeah. in particular, federal contractors' jobs. Federal contractors are not getting back pay. Mm-hmm. So any of the idea of federal workers lining up at food banks, not having savings to tie them over the crisis, it was really heartbreaking. And then, of course, the, the issue of what happens when federal authority over national parks and other federal services discontinue, th- and you know the, what happened in Joshua Tree is just one example of that. But I think that the second dimension to the shutdown was that it revealed the incompetence of the Donald Trump, of our president, uh, in conducting regular government business. I think he had a losing hand from the beginning. He didn't know it. He didn't know how to manage it. It revealed that he, you know, I mean, it revealed. We all know he's a terrible negotiator. We, uh, we all know that, that a lot of what he says is just bluster, but I think it may have revealed some of that to at least a subset of his supporters. In some ways, the shutdown laid bare the fact that, that he really doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, I think there was also an interesting gender dimension to it, which is, hasn't been fully explored, I think, the notion that, that he got outmaneuvered by a woman, I think that probably given his dispositions hurt him pretty badly and may have added another sort of uh, uh, thrown some more salt into the wound with respect to his supporters. But yeah, I think that the point is that, that it was just an abysmal failure by the administration. And there are no two ways about that.
0: I got I got the sense that a lot of this, the underlying question wasn't a policy one, but it was going to be who's going to kiss the ring, Pelosi or Trump? Like in the minds of many voters, that's really what was at stake here, Uh do you, do you think I'm off base on that one? Or uh, do you think there are, is a genuine like uh, concern or desire for a wall? Does anybody really think it's a solution to anything?
2: Um, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's entirely symbolic. There's very low, I mean, that's the other actually, you know, in terms of the, the consequences of the shutdown. I think it also revealed the fact to many people that there's just very little support for the wall among Republican politicians and among the public right? So this is the purely symbolic policy on Trump's part. He wants to deliver the wall because A, he promised it repeatedly during the campaign, and B, because it's a, it's a domination game for him, right? and, and so and no one really truly believes that this thing is going to help protect American national security or American jobs or, or you know, whatever, whatever arguments he comes up with. So it's really just a, a struggle for, for getting his own way against the tide of public opinion and against the tide of, of democratic resistance and lack of interest in his own party.
0: I think it was a gross miscalculation. You know, I remember when the Republicans got control of the House under Obama and basically started pushing for austerity during like a huge economic downturn. And I guess the idea is that you can just mess up the economy and everybody just gets mad and you help your electoral chances down the line. And I I saw the Democrats as... You know, if they were very Machiavellian about this, they're in basically the same situation. Like, what problem would they have with the economy burning down under Trump's, you know, under Trump's uh, administration? It would probably yeah. bolster, it, And it made me think, who's that? There's a, 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 I think it's a political scientist or an economist out of Harvard. Uh, Darren Asimoglu, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, uh, He's at MIT. Oh, he's at MIT. I knew he was out in, in Cambridge. But he, I, it was really interesting. You know, he, I remember him writing an article about how underdevelopment is exacerbated because the government is always destroying part of its own economy. And the idea is like somebody gets control of the government and then they sort of try to damage their opponent's economic sort of, you know, basis. And uh, with a circulation of elites, what you basically have is the government just turning its wrath over different parts of its internal economy. And I'm starting to see that happening here. Like the government, like these austerity, these shutdowns are very damaging, but the party out of power really has no incentive not to do it. And so we have to, you know, we have the government doing harm.
2: Matt, 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 if you want to jump in, I have a reaction to that, but I don't want to. I don't want no,
1: to please ask. go ahead.
2: I mean, the only thing I would say is that, that I think in the United States, voters do punish the party that imposes economic pain for no good reason. And so I think in this case, the reason why Democrats had such a strong hand was that Trump telegraphed the fact that this shutdown is his, that he will yeah. take the blame for it. And as soon as workers threatened strikes, as soon as it became clear that there will be a price to pay, the shutdown ended. So I think the, the, the difference here is that there are actually costs to be borne mm. by those who impose a government shutdown. And this was the longest shutdown in history, and things began to crack very quickly. So I think that this becomes a political game. How does blame attribution work, right? Who gets blamed for the shutdown? If it's quite clear that one party will take all the blame, eventually that party will fold. Yeah. I think, and what Trump tried to do in the midst of the shutdown was to shift the blame to the Democrats, but that just wasn't a viable option given uh, his own arguments and, and sort of the clear way in which the process unfolded.
1: Yeah, I think that his, um, his mouthpieces and people that were speaking on his behalf, like his economic advisors that were on the news, would consistently go back to their party line that this wasn't going to have an impact on the economy and that this was uh, a sort of bulletproof uh, effort on his part. But then when you have these images of the food lines and just the total damage that it did to everyday people's lives, I think the idea that this shutdown didn't have an effect on the economy was just so blatantly obvious to to the everyday person who was watching the news or just looking at what was happening around them. And so you saw this, this conflict and the, the lie really came to life here.
0: You know, what else is interesting is a lot of stories gave the impression that a lot of people who work for the federal government are working paycheck to paycheck. I remember Wilbur Ross had, like, oh, why don't they just borrow the money? <laughs>
1: well, so tone deaf, so incredibly. <laughs> oh, bro, like, I read know. the room, dude. But I know he was at Davos, or I think maybe they actually pulled out, but he he, he was doing other stuff. He wasn't distracted.
2: Oh, my God. Uh, the only thing I'll say on this is that saying that the shutdown revealed Trump's incompetence, I mean, in some ways, one can interpret that statement as just kind of a horse race statement. Oh, you know, he, he did poorly. He lost his battle. So good for the Democrats. But I think there is a bigger takeaway that maybe we'll get to later in the show about the fact that Trump is a, a dangerous, problematic president, obviously, but in some ways, what American democracy is being saved by is his incompetence. <laughs> and there's a question of whether this is actually a pattern among populist politicians or not. Many of them are political novices. And it turns out that being president or prime minister or you know whatever leadership position we're talking about is not an entry-level political job. Yeah. It turns out that you actually have to know what you're doing in order to in, to affect policy, in order to get your priorities pursued effectively. And it's quite clear that Trump does not know what he's doing, and the people around him are not particularly helpful either. And so I think one reaction is to just laugh at his incompetence, but another is to realize that if we had a leader with similar priorities, with a similar ideology, but who was much more competent, who knew how to play the political game, we
0: could be much enough- So Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz recently announced his interest in a 2020 presidential bid. On January 27th, he tweeted, I love our country and I am seriously considering running for president as a centrist independent. And the response was absolutely insane. Insanely bad. Uh, What's your take on this one? Do we need more billionaires running for office? Is Howard Schultz a visionary? Are you guys pumped up about his presidential prospects? What's your take?
1: I think this connects right back to something Bart said, which was about, um, you know, people who come in with zero political experience treating the presidency as if it's an entry level internship, right, (laughs) for like your local congressman. (laughs) Um, And so I think this is absolutely hilarious. The weird um, way that Schultz announced over Twitter, I think um, my favorite piece of blowback I saw on Twitter came from the NPR journalist Sam Sanders who in all caps caps, quote tweeted Schultz's announcement and said just stop burning your coffee that is all we ask (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like stay in your lane (laughs) fix the coffee at Starbucks and uh we would all be the better for it
2: (laughs) all (laughs) right how'd you react I mean, I, I think there is a lot of consternation about another independent candidate spoiling yet another election. Yeah, no and kidding. We can, cer- we can certainly discuss that. Mm. Uh, in terms of his own candidacy on the merits... Exactly as Neta said, I, I'm not sure that being a CEO of a company is exactly the right experience for being president. And we're seeing the evidence of that in the current presidency. This notion that business people are ideal administrators in the public sector, is, I think, has been shown to be rather vacuous. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is just in terms of his own stated policy preferences, which are pretty, pretty thin, there's there's no clear sense that he has any real idea of what he wants to do if he were to be elected, which is obviously unlikely, short of cutting taxes for himself and his friends. So it's, it's basically yet another candidacy by somebody who doesn't really know much about politics and policy, and whose entire claim to, to fame is, is his business acumen, and this sort of notion that somehow he's a centrist, and centrism is what American voters want. And, you know, and that's a whole other discussion about whether that's really true, whether he's really centrist. I think what's interesting is that in the aftermath of his announcement, he's been drifting clearly to the right, mm-hmm. partly because of the Democratic, Democratic blowback. But most of his response has been to, to vilify Democrats and cozy up to Republicans. So on one hand, that calls into question his centrism. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it also may be actually a positive development in the sense that if he does drift to the right... And if he does stay in the race, it's more likely that he'll get Republican votes rather than Democratic votes. Because there's always this question, right? Uh, Is it true that independents are spoilers of elections, and whether they are or not depends on who's voting for them? So, if, for instance, he were to stay and he'd get more Republican support than Democratic support, then you know he'd be a spoiler in in a way that would take away support from Trump. But you know, we're we're so far away from the election that so many things can happen. It's quite likely that he won't he won't stay in the race, or if he does, he'll be diminished considerably by the time we get to to the election. I think the the last thing I'll mention is it's kind of interesting to see. That there's a whole industry of consultants who are working for him, uh, who are giving him the kind of advice that he obviously wants to hear. So, you know, basically, and this has been revealed, right, that that they're saying you're exactly what Americans want. Yeah, Americans are exactly in the same center (laughs) that you occupy and you are, you know, you are going to coast to victory. Now, that's clearly wrong on on the facts in a variety of ways. I I just don't think that you get very much support at all.
0: Yeah, Nader, I feel like Nader and Pro are are from a different era. Like the analogies that we're drawing are are from a different era. And that maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is that we're in an era in which it's like base politics. It's a, a fire up the base type of politics and that it'd be hard to win on a centrist campaign. Although I just say, whatever, let the dude burn his money. I don't see this guy as having any chance whatsoever. Like there's no way the left is going to vote in another billionaire you know, with no governance experience uh, following Trump. I could see them electing Bloomberg maybe, but he was mayor of New York. And it's weird how Americans just, it's funny, it's just so on display, Americans sort of disregard for the skill and importance of running government and then their hyper-valorization of running businesses. <laughs> you know, you, you figure the Trump era would somehow do damage to that that view, and maybe it has, but... I don't know. This this sounds to me like a billionaire vanity project. And I'm guessing, if it, listen, if a billionaire wants to drop a few million dollars, uh, the smart move if you're a political consultancy is to try to get some of that cash and give him what he wants to hear, right? Uh, That's right, which is exactly what's happening. Yeah.
1: I'll just say that as somebody who grew up in the Pacific Northwest, it was a little bit fun for me to be following uh, the kind of local fallout that this this produced in Seattle and in Portland. That have had these like really long histories of ups and downs with Howard Schultz. I mean, no love lost in Seattle. He at one point was the owner of the Seattle SuperSonics and sold them off to Oklahoma City. There was this whole paper trail that showed that he was talking out of the side of his mouth, saying that he wanted to keep the team in the city, but the whole time he had this plan to get to dump the sonics and like get them out. And so, um, you know, the sort of Frappuccino voter base that he's going for,
0: <laughs> certainly in
1: many, many years in the Pacific Northwest, uh, has not had a lot of love for the guy. And so it's fun to see him starting to fail on a national level because <laughs> I come from a region of the country where um, people are really hostile toward him.
0: Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Get it.
1: well the world economic forum at davos just wrapped up and beyond the typical cast of characters that you all know and love who go to this every year so like mm. shameless billionaires Disgraced politicians, charlatans, <laughs> otherwise known as thought leaders. We uh, saw uh, an unlikely breakout star uh, who is this Dutch writer and historian. His name uh-huh. is Brooker Bregman. Uh, and did you guys catch the video of Bregman speaking that went yes. viral over the past week? Absolutely. Okay, so, so he was at Davos. And he was speaking on a panel that was actually sponsored by Time Magazine. And the theme of this panel had something to do with inequality. Um, And so the portion of his talk that, that was clipped into video and went viral was him saying something to the effect of, you know, this is my first time at Davos and I find it to be a bewildering experience. He says, I hear people talking the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency, but no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance and the rich not paying their fair share. And then the piece that went super viral was he said, it feels like I'm at a firefighter's conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. We can invite Bono once more, but we've got to be talking about taxes. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is BS. And he didn't say BS, but he said the whole thing. Uh, all the rest is BS in my opinion. And so um, I think it's so... Interesting. This went viral. I mean, between this and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling hmm. to abolish billionaires in the past week. And again, this, I think, spooked somebody like Howard Schultz into joining yeah. the 2020 presidential race. What do you all think <laughs> about this, this moment of virality of a Dutch historian talking about taxes?
0: Yeah. I thought he was on the money too. Like I remember working this out in my book, like philanthropy is small. So like in 2017, I I saw a report, Americans gave like $410 billion to charity and a little less than one third of that goes to like religious organizations, right? Mm -hmm. That's like synagogue and church dues for that pay for Sunday school and your services and all of that, the rec hall and all of that. And a lot of that 410 billion goes to, Charities that benefit richer people's communities, right? Like the community garden and all of that. Uh, Only a fraction of that goes to poor people. So like all giving in America in 2017 is $410 billion. And the Medicaid program on its own costs $592 billion. So like Hmm. all of the charity in America wouldn't cover one year of one part of America's very meager social safety net. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, totally agree with this guy. Uh, like I'm loath to dismiss all, all philanthropy from wealthy people. Like there are some great people who do a lot for social causes, but like, I see this as the exception, like, uh, a lot of talk of philanthropy, I see as a, uh, pardon the crude term, but like a rich people circle jerk. Like they, <laughs> they spend far more than they would under any taxation or far less than they would under any serious taxation scheme uh they and more importantly like there's no there's there's not even we didn't he didn't even talk about tax evasion right Mm -hmm. which i think is an even bigger problem i remember a report by the cbc saying like nobody's been followed up on after the panama papers and of course they enjoy this like noblesse oblige type of thing
1: totally the optics of being a philanthropist versus a tax-paying corporate citizen right
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> You're like, oh, thank you, sir, for, you know, that coin. It's like, it's basically, I imagine it's like the modern equivalent of like the the top-hatted billionaire walking through the slums of New York, flipping coins to like the poor. <laughs> and this guy's totally right. Like this is no substitute for like a properly funded social safety net, which America just doesn't have.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's fascinating to understand this viral moment, given sort of the background of like, how did this dude get invited, right? Because Davos Mm -hmm. is an invite only kind of a conference, you know, and so um, given the kind of really strong stance he took against the corporate bigwigs that were in the room, it's like, well, why was he even invited? But in some ways, I think some of Bregman's um, writings and the different concepts he's become popular for um, do appeal to Silicon Valley Davos types. Um, So yeah, his background as a historian and as a writer is that he um, talks about utopias advances, you know, arguments in favor of things like universal basic income, which are really popular among the Silicon Valley types, because I think for them, it's a way to, subsidize the human fallout that have come from their, like, quote unquote, disruptive labor practices. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really interesting um, to see see someone like Bregman, right, get a foothold into this type of a space. Um, And for me in particular, that all of this came to a head in the past week where he was up on that stage talking about utopias and UBI to that kind of an audience. You know, it made me think that in sociology, um, there's a connection to make, right? To acknowledge and pay homage to to someone like Eric Olin Wright, uh, mm-hmm. who our field is in mourning over, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the past couple of weeks, whose work in this area is so crucial and actually provided the kind of backdrop for someone like Bregman to go viral this week.
0: Bart?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's nice, nice of you to mention Eric Olin Wright, uh, a yeah, real totally. giant in sociology. But it's interesting that we are seeing some of these ideas that people like. Like Wright and others have been writing about, enter the political landscape. It's been really interesting with Ocasio uh, Cortez obviously talking about marginal tax rates and with the speaker at Davos. Uh, I actually found that, that uh speech was really interesting and I think it made a splash. It obviously went viral, but it was actually really nicely followed up by the comments from the Oxfam International Executive Director, Winnie Gyanima, who responded to a critique from the audience, right? The critique came from Ken Goldman, who is Yahoo's chief financial officer. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, who cares about taxes? What we're doing is we're creating jobs and the U.S. is historically low on employment, which is a a response you frequently hear. And Winnie Bianima just completely demolished the argument. She said, yes, there are jobs. But they are awful jobs, they're insecure jobs, they're precarious, they're low paying, they don't provide people with the, the modicum of human dignity. And so I thought in some ways it was a really nice coupling of two comments from Buchmann and from Gianni Ima that capture an emerging discourse on the left. Some may call it an economic populist discourse or maybe in some ways it's a, it's a socialist discourse that is really about fighting for economic justice, economic equality, for the dignity of working people. And we're seeing that become mainstream, both in the United States and in Europe. And that's a really interesting development that may shift the Overton window to some degree on on the kinds of topics that we can discuss when it comes to the economy.
1: Oh, I totally agree, Bart. I mean, this entire event had shades of we are the 99% to it, because I think that 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 panel that Bianema and Bregman were on was organized around a report from Oxfam International that said, there are 26 individual billionaires in the world that possess the same wealth as the world's poorest 3.8 billion people combined, and so that was really the the conversation starting point of this of this panel. And so um, there are certainly some opportunities I think that people are beginning to mobilize around, particularly you know in light of um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and other people that are that are. Kind of jumping onto this moment to advance these these arguments and critiques.
0: I do want to say this is this is precisely the reason why I think someone like Schultz is just at the time is not right for someone like him. No, I I, I don't see a billionaire uh, standing up and uh, demanding taxes, and I think taxes is part of what's needed, not just of billionaires, but of, of of the upper middle class as well. Uh, I don't know if you can win by selling it, but i'd say no to a billionaire just on that alone Agreed.
2: yeah and i think where you know the one thing in Brethman's comments that was interesting is he did allude to the fact that the billionaires and people in the top income brackets are not actually paying their fair share so it's not just that he was talking about marginal tax rates which i think was part of the subtext but it was also about the loopholes and it was also about the you know the, the yeah. fact that that rich people have a whole variety of methods through which they avoid paying their fair share I think this is a topic that, that will keep coming back in the political discourse over the next while and, and I think it's a good thing.
0: It it's a huge problem though, evasion. And I, I I mean, I was just so I I made quick mention of it earlier, but I was so struck by uh, that story about how few people got caught up in the Panama Papers scandal and the the Paradise Papers scandal. Like from a legal standpoint, they had a ton of data on people who were willfully evading taxes and the Canadian Revenue Service was just not following up. Like, what on earth is going on with that? Like, that has to be a sign of there being something wrong. In the news today, uh, or not today, but a couple days ago, uh, there was news that Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, met with uh, University of Toronto Professor Jordan Peterson first. Nena, while I while I have you here, you ever see that guy around campus?
1: Oh, my dear colleague! Yes, yes, we grab lunch together all the time. He <laughs> sits in on our colloquium at sociology.
0: <laughs> a friend cool of the mood. department, yeah, <laughs> a real friend. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do you live your life according to the twelve rules for life? <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, look, the thing is, is we make a lot of jokes about Good Old JP over here, but he is truly like Canada's number one cultural export currently. Uh, like, he is bigger than Drake. He is bigger than <laughs> just. Oh, I, God. you know, walk through an American airport and I see. 12 rules in those airport bookstores and people are reading it on airplanes. And so, um, uh, you know, this is our reality is that he's actually right now the most successful cultural export coming out of Canada.
0: Yes. But this is why popular appeal is no substitute for like acceptance by the peerage. Like, cause <laughs> there's a lot of stupidity that gets a lot of popular appeal, but in any case, so News came out that Ontario Premier Doug Ford was going to uh, sit down and meet with him, and there was questions about what did they discuss. And Jordan Peterson quickly tweeted after uh, about his opposition to the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which is something that both that he's against. And I presume, well, why wouldn't Doug Ford be against the Human Rights Commission? Because, of course, what a noble cause. Why not fight (laughs) human rights? But, uh, my, my honest interpretation of this was, wow, this is like a show off academic meeting with a show off politician to discuss like an issue that will inflame white sense of, uh, being encircled by a minority and, you know, mobilize that idea that this is like, that politics is like a race conflict between the whites and the others. And, uh. That's that's what I'm imputing on this. Am I off? What's your take?
1: Yeah, I mean, from where I sit, which is like I'm interfacing with undergrads who are watching the YouTube videos produced by Peterson and others, sort of in his his fold, and they want to talk about this in our classrooms. And um, uh, you know, I see that this totally um, is having some resonance with like certain certain groups here, and it's not even just sort of like white voters the way that you brought it up uh joe it's Mm -hmm. sort of like um uh any number of undergrads they're women they're men they're students of color um they they are interested in this sort of contrarian take that that peterson and others like him are putting forward and so um uh, i think that at the time that the appointment between these two had been scheduled because it was just released in the past week, right? That they had this meeting, but it was, it took place sometime in like October or November. And this was around the same time that there was tons of talk from both of these people about um, not just doing away with the Ontario human rights code, but also creating a new set of um, free speech codes of conduct for Ontario universities as well. And so um, this has now been collapsed as also like a free speech issue too. And so it, it creates more about sort of the erosion of public confidence, right? In universities or in science. These are all of a
0: piece. Andrew, what what do people get? Like when you have students who are big Jordan Peterson fans, we've we've treated this in the show, and my take has basically been like he it's a style over substance thing. Like they just they they like his style and they like to see what looks like a respectable delivery of like anti-PC uh, you know, anti-progressive culture, but what's your sense? What are people pulling from it?
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's this sense where he's appealing to some of our students because it seems like he's speaking truth to power or he's, mm-hmm. you know, um, allowing them to sort of like take the red pill and see the world, <laughs> you know, in a, in a way that none of us have allowed or encouraged them to see it. And so um, there's, I think like, to some extent, a Pied Piper thing that's happening, um, but I do see that our students like they they haven't totally quote unquote like fallen for it. They're very critical consumers, but nonetheless, they are consumers of the videos, which I find really really fascinating. And it's something that I think uh, myself and my colleagues like we've had to really build into part of our teaching repertoire. Right? Oh, Is like God. how do we we talk about this in class discussion?
0: Uh. Is, is Jordan Peterson hot, hot at Harvard right now, too?
2: <laughs> I, I must say I haven't, um, aside from Twitter, I, I haven't thought about him much nor heard about him much at Harvard, but that could be partly I'm, because I'm a sabbatical. Maybe in my absence, he has become the hottest <laughs> topic on campus. Um, but I would say that what's interesting about the meeting, and, and who knows what they talked about, but I think that is absolutely right, that this meeting took place. At the same time as there was a discussion of forcing Canadian universities to sign on to this free speech commitment. And, and the fact that, that Jordan Peterson is a free speech warrior is not coincidental here. That both Ford and Peterson, their appeal seems to be coming from a similar place. There is a sense among white Americans, white Canadians that there is a crisis coming or that perhaps they're already in the midst of crisis. Uh, and that has to do with in the US with becoming a majority minority nation with the fact that there's a perception of, of collective status loss among white Americans. And one dimension of that is this notion that coastal multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism is imposing certain cultural norms and rules of, of speech on those white Americans. That's one dimension of the sense of rapid change and cultural threat. Um, or collective status threat. You know, in Canada, it's a slightly different environment because multiculturalism has long been an established government policy and and a dominant way through which Canadians understand themselves collectively. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, there seems to be a a backlash brewing and Ford's election is one sign of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, that meeting captures the fact that uh, this is what Peterson and Ford have in common, this notion that they are pretending to be or maybe sincerely believing that they are the defenders of dominant majority culture against the incursions of multiculturalism, liberal campus, deplatforming, and all of the other things that Peterson talks about. I'm not surprised that they met. I'm not sure what comes out of it, but in some ways it's uh, a sign of, of where we are politically, both in Canada and the United States. And it showcases one source of support for populist politics these days, particularly radical right populist politics, which has to do with racial threats and with collective status loss.
0: Well, you, I think you have a very uh, charitable interpretation of the two. I I more saw them as two people who hit the same target audience. And so it's like this is a co-branded event. It's kind of like how peanut butter cups and uh, cereal are for kids. So they make a peanut butter cup cereal. It's like a super band. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so right. right. yeah. um,
1: next Halloween's group costume can be the Jordan Peterson and Doug Ford meeting.
0: Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I I'll, I'll, for once, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll, stay, I'll stay in America for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so Megan Neely, a, a Duke University professor and uh, the director of graduate studies of Duke's uh, Biostats MA program, recently uh, found herself in the center of a controversy for an email that she wrote. Uh, The email was in effect asking Chinese students not to speak Chinese loudly in a building. She wrote uh, on a listserv that her colleagues, now uh, I presume it's senior colleagues, but uh, because I I assume that if it was a, a peer, you'd be like, "Well, just send it out yourself. But anyhow, she wrote that, Other faculty were complaining about students talking loudly and in Chinese and said, quote, they were disappointed that these students were not taking the opportunity to improve their English and were being so impolite as to have a conversation that not everyone on the floor could understand, which I was like, oh, please. But in any case, this is basically a letter telling Chinese students don't speak Chinese. And the professor found herself at the center of controversy and ultimately resigned her position as DGS. Speak English emails. Your take on this story? Who who wants to jump in or shall I start? Maybe I'll start? (laughs) Sure. I'll start. I'm tenured. Um, (laughs) Okay, so here I'm going to give some background because I also – was the director of graduate studies of uh, a program. And I did it as an assistant professor pre-tenure. And before going into how that sheds light on the story, I wanna say to all my untenured colleagues out there, do not do it. Do not be a director of graduate studies. That's a job for someone with tenure. I was lucky because I have ultra supportive colleagues in a great department. But if someone is asking you to be DGS, take a pause and ask yourself if you're being set up to succeed in your pursuit of tenure. I think you're not. I actually think it's not a good idea. So stay away from it. But uh, an assistant professor who's a DGS is not in a strong position. That's a position of weakness, in my view, because you're in a department where senior colleagues are pushing jobs that are ill-suited onto junior faculty. And when I read the email, I saw it as a warning, like she's saying, listen, there are there are colleagues, I was presuming senior, though I might be wrong, who harbor these views. Be careful. Now, that's not the way to handle it. You should if you have if this problem emerges, just kick it up to the dean's office. I mean, if you don't feel like challenging your senior tenured colleagues openly, but like uh, I feel like the university just threw this woman under the bus. Like, uh, we haven't heard from the people who were making the request. Uh, and, uh, I, 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 to some degree think that they're shooting the messenger. Now I think she was wrong to write that email, but, um, I, I see people who are more powerful getting a pass. I, I, I've gotten negative, uh, I've gotten negative responses for that, uh, saying that I'm acting as an apologist for, her and I'm not, but, uh, or maybe I was inadvertently, and I, I do agree that, like she, she was definitely in the wrong. That email never should have been written. But like, there's something that bothers me about seeing an assistant prof DGS be the only one who is bearing the brunt of this scandal. Uh, any responses, or don't want to touch it.
1: <laughs> I think there's a couple <laughs> interesting uh, details that I saw roll out in real time on the internet when this story broke, I think like Saturday night, um, which was that uh, this assistant professor had actually sent a very similar email one year earlier, uh, um, no. which had also been tagged as highly problematic and had been brought to the attention of uh, administrators. But clearly um, some conversations had not been had or changes had not been made because she effectively plagiarized herself in the email that was sent about a year later, um, where it really has the same sort of rhetoric around it. And of course, like I being like a nosy Netta who had Google at the ready, I think I was like in bed on my phone, just looking at this train wreck. I of course, like went straight to whatever this program is that she's the DGS of because I'm thinking like, why is an assistant professor of the DGS within an hour of this news breaking, she stepped down. So she didn't Mm -hmm. give up obviously like her faculty position, but she um, self-removed herself as DGS. So I'm thinking like what broke down program are you a part of that this became sort of your like uh, escape hatch out of this thing. And so I did a little bit of digging and I apologize if this is a mischaracterization of the program of which she's a part but it seems like it's this master of biostatistics it's uh, in some ways looks like a revenue generating program for the university um, something where it's bringing in um, a really significant proportion of international students I think it's meant to be a platform for them to then enter other graduate programs you know what I mean and so it's just started to stink the more and more I looked at this and then they uncovered the email from last year from this professor and I was just thinking wow like this is really a referendum on far bigger systemic issues in mm-hmm. American higher education right now.
2: Bart? Wow. Netta, that's a terrific investigative work. I think you should write it up in the in, in form of an op-ed somewhere because that's a more profound reading of this than I think I've heard. You know, I, that's really interesting. I mean, I, my first reaction was, oh, Duke. <laughs> no, I, I spent two years... <laughs> I I spent two wonderful years at Duke's terrific sociology department as a graduate student. That's where I started my PhD. It's a great department. Yeah, it's a wonderful department. I I was there before I moved to Princeton, and, and it was a really important formative time for me. And I have a lot of love for Duke, but... Ah, Stephen (laughs) Miller, Richard Spencer, the Mm -hmm. lacrosse scandal, and then this, you know, Duke just can't get a break. So anyway, I'll I'll leave it to Duke to figure out why I want to do about it. But I think in terms of this particular thing, I mean, it's just an awful disaster. I think that the email was horrible. The sentiment behind the email is obviously ridiculous and and toxic. But, I, you know, when I first saw the email, I shared your response, Joe, and I, I was thinking, well, yeah, so the email is terrible, What she did was, was generally awful and she should be somehow punished for it. But what about those faculty members that came into her office and complained about the students in the first place? They're not getting the same level of, of critique as she is, and they certainly deserve it because they, as she wrote, they, they essentially threatened not to hire the students because they were speaking Chinese in the public space, which is just yeah. awful. That's uh, but, yeah. but But having heard uh, Neta's uh, take on this, it sounds like that's potentially fabricated because the same email went out the year before without any mention of senior colleagues. So who knows? I guess the, the bottom line is, is this is the kind of thing we don't need in universities. Forget deplatforming and all the yeah. other things that people are so concerned about. It's this kind of level of everyday racism that is a huge problem. And the, the students in this program must feel terrible going forward because they know that they, they're they not being protected by administrators and faculty. I think, Joe, you're actually right. If, if there were some faculty who came into her office and, in fact, did threaten not to hire the students, she should have gone straight to the dean or the department chair. She should have also spoken out against them, although, of course, that's sometimes a hard thing to do for a junior faculty member. It is. Let's not send out terrible emails. So I, I have not, not much to say beyond that. I think Netta really nailed all of it. Yeah. So Netta, go write
0: that op-ed.
1: Look, I have no direct experience with with the university down there, uh, except that, again, like I'm a big fan of our friends in the sociology department there. And so I think um, for me, it just brought up these bigger issues that we know are, are huge problems. Right. The way that we treat uh, international students as revenue generating cash cows, mm-hmm. literally like at some institutions, they're called basic unit or basic income units biu So you know there's a really significant uh racism aspect to this uh sort of dehumanization of of these students who want to be here they want to learn they want to you know move forward with their with their career goals and we do such a huge disservice to them and so um, i think this was a really egregious case but all of our universities like part of the shop is running this way. I guess that's what it brought up for me.
0: Yeah. It's also like to my advice to people who are running similar programs, uh, based on my own experience is like, dudes learn to differentiate command of English, command of statistics, and like overall assessments of professionalism, like intelligence and all of that. Like my experience is a lot of people conflate all of these things. And uh, you know, I, uh, and, and like students do learn English on their own. Like, I don't know how easy they think it is to resist assimilation in like small town, you know, North Carolina, but like here in Flushing, all our students assimilate, like they learn English and like Flushing, you can avoid English, no problem. So, you know, and, and you can benefit by making that differentiation. Like our enrollments, we get tons of amazing quants. Uh, who are just in the early phases of learning English and uh, you know after two years they're going to learn it so I say don't obsess over language. Uh, I think just,
1: it's, I mean this is ridiculous like they were not being um, tested right this was an environment where like their academics were being assessed or anything yeah. like that this is done like if I'm not wrong, like hanging out in the lounge or in the hallway, this is in their own time. This is really about like the policing of their their social lives in this informal space. And so um, any kind of concern trolling about the assimilation of our international students, I think we really have to, to question, right? Like what are the terms of this engagement? Are we talking about you know, a sort of baseline ability to to conduct academic work in the official language of English, or are we talking, right, about kind of profiling the personal lives of these students?
0: And now we turn to Bart Bonikowski, Associate Professor of Sociology at Harvard University. Bart is one of the discipline's leading experts on nationalism and populism, He's probably best known for his 2016 ASR article, Varieties of American Popular Nationalism with Paul DiMaggio, and has a bunch of great articles The Popular Style of American Politics, Ethno Nationalist Populism, and the Mobilization of Collective Sentiment. All in all, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us, Bart. It's
2: great to be here. Thanks, Joe.
0: All right. So not everyone here is plugged into political sociology, so maybe it's best to start with some basic concepts. When we talk about nationalism and populism, what are we talking about?
2: That's a great start. I think there's a lot of confusion about both terms. That confusion is especially rife in in public discourse, but also to some degree in scholarship. For a long time, scholars were primarily interested in understanding where nation-states came from. How is it the case that we've got states governing a territory – and those states are legitimated by people's sense of collective identity, that we're all in this together, there's kind of an imagined community that we are part of. The question was largely a historical one. How did this come to be? There's a lot of research on that, really terrific research, people like Ernest Gellner, Benedict Anderson, and many others. For these scholars, the meaning of nationalism was quite clear. For Ernest Gellner, nationalism is a principle that the cultural boundaries of a state should correspond to its political boundaries, so that essentially the state and the nation correspond to one another. Now, the question, of course, is what defines the cultural boundaries of the nation? And here there are really two varieties of nationalism, civic and ethnic. In countries that were defined by civic nationalism, membership of the nation was largely elective so that anybody could become a member of the nation as long as they subscribed to the nation's principles, respected its laws and institutions, and felt subjective identification with the nation, some sort of sense of loyalty to it. In ethnic nationalism, on the other hand, membership was much more ascriptive and much more limited. In order to be a, a legitimate member of the nation, one had to possess the right kind of ancestry, ethnicity, religion, and other immutable characteristics. But what mattered here is that after the founding moment, once countries set up on these tracks, things remained largely unchanged in the future. Once a country became civic or ethnic, it remained civic or ethnic in perpetuity. And so really, nationalism was not relevant after the founding moment. It was relevant when we wanted to compare countries to one another, but it wasn't really relevant for understanding historical change within those countries. And that model has been largely challenged in the last 20, 30 years by scholars like Michael Billig, Rogers Brubaker, and many others, who've pointed out that actually there isn't this singular, coherent national character that we can identify in individual countries. In fact, what there is, is a much more complicated, fragmented set of principles within each country about what the country means and about what its criteria of legitimate membership are. And so in my own work, I've tried to map that variation in meanings to show how individuals understand their nation, their relationship to the nation, how those understandings differ within national populations, and how that in turn affects politics. So if we use survey data for this purpose, we can measure a whole variety of of attitudes that define someone's conception of their nation and then see whether those response patterns cluster into different groups. And that's precisely what I've done both within the United States in a 2016 ASR paper with Paul DiMaggio and across other countries in in, in other publications. And so the idea is if we look closely at the beliefs of everyday people, it turns out that there is more heterogeneity within countries potentially than across them. If we take a random American... That person's beliefs about the nation may have more in common with a randomly selected French person or Norwegian person than with a compatriot down the road. And these different and occasionally competing understandings of the nation may be latent most of the time, but once in a while they become important sources of political beliefs and political behaviors. The current political moment is one such instance where existing cleavages around the meaning of a nation that had been latent in the past have become manifest and politically mobilizable. And then that's, in fact, what has happened with the election of Donald Trump in the United States, but also the election of other nationalist populist candidates and parties in Europe and elsewhere. I can get into populism, but I imagine you may want to prod that a little bit.
0: Well, I want to first, before we move on, can you give us a sense concretely of what nationalism looks like here in America? Like, give us, give our listeners a sense of like, concretely, how do you see it in day to day life? How can you locate it? Where can you find a concrete reference for it?
2: Well, uh, one very clear example of nationalism at work uh, were the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention, Mm -hmm. where you see two very different understandings of what America is on display. Mm -hmm. In In the Democratic National Convention, America is diversity. It's about showcasing the ethnic, racial, religious diversity of the American society. It's about the fact that everyone belongs, we're a nation of immigrants. That's a very different vision than a vision presented at the Republican National Convention. And that was a vision of of a nation in deep trouble, a nation where traditional conceptions of mostly white, male, Christian America are under threat. A nation that's basically on a sharp decline. And part of that decline is due to the influx of immigrants Mm. and growing diversity and the possibility of America becoming a majority-minority nation. Mm -hmm. And so, essentially, you've got two very different notions of what America is, who gets to count as a legitimate American, Mm -hmm. and what the future of the country holds. And so, those are just two examples. But there's kind of a sense in which, for a long time, there was this notion that America is fundamentally a liberal, inclusive, egalitarian society. Mm -hmm. And slavery and Jim Crow, those were just exceptions from that norm. And that's a very problematic position. Uh, there's a great book by Rogers Smith called Civic Ideals, which directly challenges that notion. And he argues that, in fact, if you look at American history, there's always been this competition between alternative views of America, one egalitarian and inclusive and progressive, another deeply ethnonationalist, racist and exclusionary. He has a third model to it as well and he actually empirically traces the competition between these alternative views of america in citizenship law over a good century and shows that sometimes one becomes dominant sometimes the other and you can see the residues of this competition in the law that's been a big inspiration for my own work i do something very similar although not historically not in the law but in survey data to show that if you look at americans today and we ask them about things such as What are the criteria of legitimate membership in the nation, Mm -hmm. who gets to belong, who does not? What are you proud of about America, both the nation and the state? Do you think America is a better country than others? Do you think Americans are better than others? If you ask these kinds of questions and you look at the way in which the response patterns cluster, you end up with very different competing models of American nationhood that are present today in the American population and that shape people's politics.
1: So, uh, from what you know, very modest amount of reading I've done in the area of nationalism, um, there's of course like a really significant body of work that's doing um, attitudinal surveys and looking into that. Um, I'm wondering, from your vantage point, um, what do you think are exciting methods to measure or study nationalism beyond you know surveys of attitudes?
2: So within survey research, there are various options, some of which are more fruitful than others. For a long time, people treated nationalist attitudes on a kind of variable by variable basis. Uh And then showed, well, you know, if you look at the way in which some people say that to be truly American, you have to be white or have American ancestry, let's see if that correlates somehow with some other attitude, with some other variable. And that, you know that's an interesting approach, and it shows that some people are more nativist than others. But what, I think the way I've tried to analyze server data is using a slightly different methodology, and that is latent class analysis, which allows you to inductively pull out clusters of people who share a similar pattern of responses. And what that allows you to do is essentially capture these cultural communities or groups of people with distinct conceptions of nationhood. So that, you know, that's still staying within the realm of survey research, but using methods that are compatible with what we know about cultural beliefs from cultural sociology. And that is that cultural beliefs are relational, that they constitute schemas or models of specific domains of, of social life, and that we can use survey data to measure that. But beyond surveys, there are many other methods that can be used, some of which I have used myself. For instance, experimental research is obviously a very useful paradigm for studying nationalism, and I'm thinking, for example, of some of the work by Rob Willer, which showed that if you expose people to pictures of politicians, including Barack Obama, with lighter or darker shading of the skin, that actually ends up activating racial resentments that then translate to support for the Tea Party. You know, and I've used experimental research myself to see, for instance... Well, what's the relationship between populism and nationalism? If you prime people with just anti-elite talk, does that then lead to greater antipathy towards ethnic and racial minorities? And, mm-hmm. and it turns out that it does. Uh, this is using survey experiments. So I think you know, that's a, an interesting tool for trying to identify some of the mechanisms that link up nationalism with other ideological belief systems and with political preferences. The third method or family of methods that I would mention is computational text analysis. And that's a, a research tradition that I've relied on quite a bit. For, particularly for studying populism, but increasingly for nationalism as well. And that is to actually look at what kinds of appeals are being made in political discourse and which types of nationalism are being primed by politicians. And so, you know, I mentioned the example of the Republican Democratic National Conventions. Mm-hmm. Those entailed very different imagery, very different discourse about America, which then... Activated belief systems, which are themselves heterogeneous within American society. And so I think studying political discourse and connecting it to belief systems is a very fruitful way forward. And and that's where we can bring together text analysis with survey research and perhaps
0: experimental designs. And and, and populism, how is it different from nationalism?
2: So frequently the two are conflated. And I think that's a problem analytically from a research standpoint. It's a problem in terms of public debate as well. So populism at its very core is a way of framing political claims in a way that juxtaposes a virtuous people with some sort of corrupt elite. It's a black and white Manichaean way of seeing the world. And it's a deeply moral form of discourse. There's also in most varieties of populism, this inherent skepticism toward representative institutions, a sense that those institutions represent the elites and not the true interests of the people. Because it's actually pretty, a pretty thin ideology, it's, as some have framed it, or in my view, it's a pretty thin form of political discourse. So there isn't much content there beyond this people versus elite opposition. It can be attached to a whole variety of ideologies. So you can have right-wing populism, you can have left-wing populism, and they differ quite a bit in their ideological content. A lot of right-wing populism has combined these anti-elite claims with nationalist appeals and nationalist rhetoric, and particularly ethno-nationalist appeals. On the left, for most part, this anti-elite rhetoric has targeted big business, capital, CEOs, bankers, and so forth. It's been largely an economic populism that is also moral. It's also binary in this people versus elite opposition, but it doesn't tend to have an ethno-nationalist dimension to it that's sort of an empirical regularity, not a theoretical precept, right? So it is possible for left-wing populism to attach itself to ethno-nationalism too. Mm -hmm. And there are some examples of that in the past. There's some instances of labor movements defending white workers, not just any workers. That's where you see kind of a left-wing populism combined with potentially with ethno-nationalism. But for most part, these days, left-wing populism is largely economic and not ethno-nationalist. There's a term coined by John Judas, uh, the journalist who wrote a terrific book on populism, where he says that right-wing populism is triadic. It's people versus the elites, and then the ethnic minorities that are ostensibly protected by the elites against the interests of everyday people, right? So it's the three components to it, whereas on the left, it's really a binary people versus elite distinction.
0: Is it? Is it though, Bart, like, I mean, there's a lot of narrative about, like, rural white voters voting against their interests. I mean, don't you need the the hapless stooges to reconcile like the view with the democratic institutions.
2: So I'm going to clarify that a little bit. So the notion that white Midwestern you know, working class voters are voting for right wing populism suggests that, that what exactly
0: like uh, that, uh, the, uh, it's interesting. It sounds to me like a mirror image of the left rhetoric that, you know, uh, millionaires and elites take advantage and, and protect rural, uh, rural whites uh it's like uh, uh who vote against their en- interests like it might i have a sense that like uh both sides have to rely on like elites who are manipulating you know some unfavorable other popular group maybe i'm uh, maybe it's not yeah,
2: maybe- th- no, no, that, 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 that's actually interesting no, no I, I i haven't heard, seen that articulated anywhere in scholarship but in some ways you may be right but that much as on the right, the, the fear is fear of minorities and anger directed at elites that supposedly uh, cater to them. On the left, the, there is to some degree uh, a scapegoating and moral panic about white working class voters who are essentially being favored and potentially exploited by right-wing populist politicians. That's that's certainly interesting.
0: Well, it's a generic generic rhetorical strategy where you fill in the blanks with the actors. That's the only point I was... I
2: I think there's a qualitative difference, though, in in the way in which the threats are framed, right? So there is much less emphasis on the left. being terrified of white workers coming over and um, engaging in criminal acts and threatening national security. And, you know, it's it's more about the fact that they are supporting the party that you're opposed to. Mm. Whereas on the right, it's very much a nationalist rhetoric. It's about the fact that Say in the U.S. case, America is rightfully a white Anglo-Saxon right. Protestant nation, and immigrants and minorities, Muslims, are, are coming and threatening our livelihood and our security mm-hmm. and the very core of what America is. So it's a it's slightly different or a very different configuration of beliefs. It's really an anti-elite populist rhetoric that's attached to a deeply ethno-nationalist ideological disposition.
0: What do you? What's your sense of what's driving this? Uh, you know, the, this ethno-nationalism. Like, is it? a grassroots phenomenon or do you see it as purposefully being cultivated like where's it coming from in a a macro sense what are the the social forces that are causing this so that's
2: the million dollar question And, and my work for a long time was primarily preoccupied with mapping out the different configurations of nationalist beliefs and trying to understand how they relate to political behavior without really engaging in the rise of the radical right, because a lot of this work preceded Donald Trump and preceded some of the developments in Europe. And then similarly, my work in populism was really trying to understand where does this political style come from? Why do politicians engage in populist discourse and sometimes and not others? And in fact, the paper I wrote about this wasn't dealing with the radical right. It was dealing with presidential candidates in the United States between 1952 and 1996. It turns out that as Hofstadter and others and Lipset have argued, populism is a very common trope in American politics, and it long has been. So a lot of the work that I, I did prior to 2015 was trying to understand these phenomena in their own right as important political topics. But of course, what happened after that is that the radical right had a number of victories. The 2016 election was obviously won, Brexit, the entry of radical right parties into governments in Europe, and their continued good fortunes in elections generally. So I I was getting a lot of questions about how my work on nationalism and populism relates to the rise of radical right politics. Mm -hmm. And so I've certainly Mm -hmm. written about that and thought about that quite a bit. It's a tricky thing to study because there's a lot of similarity across cases on one hand in the form that this politics takes Mm -hmm. and in some of the basis of support for it, but there are also a lot of case-specific particularities. And so some people, particularly economists, not surprisingly, argue that it all boils down to economics. The people who are voting for radical right parties, I'm using that umbrella broadly to encompass Donald Trump as somebody who captured the Republican Party as well as a number of of upstart parties in Europe. So the reason that people are favoring this form of politics is that they're responding to precariousness in their day-to-day economic situation. Whether it's trade shocks, whether it's capital mobility, whether it's automation, these are all things that are endangering people's livelihood. As a result, people are obviously upset and they're turning against elites and toward anti-establishment candidates. And so that's one diagnosis of the problem. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the data, it turns out that this is actually quite problematic. For instance, in the United States, the working class that's in particularly dire economic circumstances is not white. It's predominantly African-American and Latino. These are folks who are working in precarious jobs and having a really tough go of it. Yet they're not voting for Donald Trump. Mm. It also turns out that if you look at the base of support for Trump, there's a question of whether you're looking at the primary or the general election. But income doesn't map very well onto Trump support. Hmm. Education and occupation, a little better, but still not. Quite as well as you would need to bolster the economics argument. Yeah. Instead, what really explains it is you know, holding racially resentful views. Yeah. It's what I would group under ethnonationalism. nationalism right. And so we need a multi-causal explanation. Sure. I think it's clear that the, the supporters of radical right parties tend to be white or belong to the majority ethno-racial group. Mm-hmm. They tend to hold lower levels of education. They tend to live outside of urban centers. And they tend to be both ethno-nationalist in a disposition and have low levels of trust in institutions. And so for some of them, it's chances are that it is their direct economic experience that's causing their frustration. Mm-hmm. For some, it is a mediated sense of economic threat. That is, they see through social networks, through the media, that people like them mm-hmm. are not doing well. And the question of who are people like them becomes really important. And obviously, race, class uh, plays an important role here. Right. And then for others, yeah, it is the sense of being told that you can't think or speak a certain way. Mm -hmm. And if you want to sort of boil all this down to one overarching category, I would say that what supporters of the radical right are reacting to is a perception of collective status threat. Mm -hmm. That is, my family may not have been the richest in town or the richest in in the state of the country, but people like me were viewed as the heart of the nation. Mm -hmm. We were at the top of the ethno-racial status hierarchy. Mm -hmm. That's changing that's no longer the case and its manifestations are economic they're cultural it's about whether you see yourself and people like you represented in popular culture whether you see people like you represented by the politicians who are in washington it's whether you think people like you can do well economically whether your children can do well economically or whether you see your group as declining over time now why would people think that the status hierarchy is under threat i mean objectively speaking white Americans are still doing much better than pretty much any other group, and similar statistics can be cited for other countries. And the answer is that there are a number of perceived structural shocks that have taken place simultaneously or in close proximity to one another, some of which are actual real shocks on the ground, others are fears of things that might happen. And so obviously some of these are demographic, the notion that the demographic makeup of of the United States is changing rapidly, and that the same is true in European countries, and that makes... These white supporters of the radical right feel that they're on the way to becoming uh, a minority. There are national security threats like terrorism that have been experienced over the past while that also create a sense of insecurity and fear. There are migration shocks and migration crises like the refugee crisis in Europe, like past waves of immigration to the United States that are often linked together with terrorism and other sources of anxiety by opportunistic politicians. And, of course, there are economic crises and rising inequality and a variety of other changes. And the point is that some of this stuff, again, is experienced directly by people. But a lot of it is really sort of drummed up by politicians and by media personalities. And these fears are then channeled toward intergroup resentment. So you're in an economically precarious position? Well, look, African-Americans and Latinos are doing so well. Oh, you're scared of terrorism? Well, look, there are more people coming across the border and, uh, and coming after you. You don't see people like you in popular culture. You don't see politicians representing people like you. That's because we're being led by liberal cosmopolitans who favor minorities over you. And so there's this element of scapegoating and fear-mongering that makes the politics of uh, ethnonationalism work really well, particularly when it's attached to populist anti-elite arguments as well. And the radical right has come up with this really effective formula for bringing together nationalism, populism, and authoritarianism. And these three elements of radical right ideology have certain elective affinities With one another. So, populism critiques the elites and glorifies the people, while nationalism helps fill in the blank in terms of who the people are. Authoritarianism allows for a set of measures that will help oust those in power and ensure the continued dominance of the groups who are supporting radical actors. So, there's kind of an elective affinity between these three elements that has made this particular discursive mix especially effective during these moments of structural change and a growing sense of status anxiety for all of these multiple structural reasons I just mentioned.
0: How much of it, I always wonder with this, like how much of this is a a top-down phenomenon? Like, uh, you know, I I see Trump's election as a a freakish low probability event that came to fruition, right? Like a 10% probability event happens one time out of 10, and that's how I interpret Trump. And like, I wonder, had we elected Hillary Clinton... Would, would we still be discussing the you know the, the issue of uh, ethno-nationalism, or do you think it would have been relegated to a footnote and uh, will lose salience uh, when Trump is displaced? Or do you think that I'm naive and like many people, I just missed the, the brute force of like a long-term groundswell of ethno-nationalism and that it is a long-term force that's here to stay?
2: So th- th- there's a lot in that question yeah, or in those sure. questions. Yeah, it's probably a bad question. So, no, but, but in a good sense. <laughs> so um, first, I agree that the Trump election was in many ways a chance event. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the general elections, Republicans are voting Republican, Democrats are voting Democrat. Mm-hmm. Really, why Trump won the general election is not that interesting a question. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it went one way or the other can be ascribed to a whole slew of factors, redistricting, Russian interference, Clinton's campaign failures, You know, whichever is your favorite cause, you can find some evidence for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's much more interesting to ask why Trump was able to capture the Republican party in primary. Mm-hmm. I think that's a much bigger puzzle actually. But even there, you can say, well, it has to do with a specific lineup of candidates this particular year. It could have gone in a variety of ways. Maybe if there were a smaller pool or a stronger candidate opposed to Trump, maybe it would have gone differently. And that's all quite possible. But the fact that it was a, a low probability of event that that panned out for the Republican Party doesn't mean that ethnonationalism was not relevant prior to the Trump election, nor that it will cease to be important after Trump is out of office. My work has shown that ethnonationalism, and and I don't want to just stick to ethnonationalism, nationalism, because actually in my work, I show four distinct varieties of nationalism, but two of them share this feature of being exclusionary on ethno-racial grounds. So this form of nationalism has long animated the American public and the publics of other contemporary democracies. It's been associated with anti-immigrant policy preferences, with anti-immigrant views, with opposition, certain forms of redistribution with welfare chauvinism. And so there's been this reservoir of voters for whom these are strong beliefs, but who haven't always been voting on these beliefs. And I think that's an important point to make is actually if you look at aggregate trends over a long period of time, there is no massive increase in anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States or in Europe. There isn't a massive increase in racism in the aggregate. It's a point I made in the, in the 2017 British, British Journal of Sociology article. And that also comes up in the book that came out this year by John Sides, Michael Tesler, and Lynn Vavre called the
0: Identity Crisis. So it's like a collective perception phenomenon is what you're saying? Well, it's, it's two things.
2: One thing that has happened is that attitudes that were latent previously became activated during the 2016 election mm-hmm. and the lead up to it. So... You know, there's always been a, a subset of the American population that had internationalist beliefs. It's just that those weren't the main criteria for the votes. Mm. And what Trump plugged into was that as a result of the structural changes, some which I've already addressed in the 2000s, those nationalist beliefs became more salient. And his specific form of discourse was very well aligned with those beliefs. That's one thing. The other thing that paper that I'm wrapping up right now shows that, in fact, if you look at the distribution of nationalist beliefs across the two parties in the United States, you see big differences. So there's no aggregate increase, but ethno-nationalist beliefs become sorted into the Republican Party, whereas the Democratic Party becomes less ethno-nationalist over time. And so you've got partisan sorting, which uh, has been documented in other domains of social and cultural life over the last 20 years, whereby the Republican Party becomes an ethno-nationalist, white nationalist party over time. And so these kinds of claims and these beliefs become much better aligned on the Republican side, allowing Trump to to succeed. And you see something very similar across European countries. So it's not about a groundswell of new beliefs and new attitudes. It's really about the realignment across parties and their activation and increased salience over time. And then the, the last thing I'll say. Directly to your question about whether if it hadn't been for Trump, this wouldn't be a topic of great interest in the U.S., mm-hmm. you're probably right in the sense that we wouldn't have as much ink spilled by academics and journalists on it. Mm-hmm. I'd probably still be writing on it, but hey, just yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, my sense is that, that there, another Trump would come. And in fact, mm-hmm. that is the current date. We have a president who is clearly appealing to ethnonationalism and who is appearing to white nationalism and racism in the population, who's pursuing largely ethnonationalist policies mm-hmm. to the degree that, that Trump is making good on any of his promises. It is largely those that have to do with ethnonationalism and, and catering to his ethnonationalist base. He's not really governing as a populist. He's not really doing much to take down the elites, right? So he campaigned as a populist and a nationalist. He's governing largely as an ethno-nationalist to the degree that he's actually governing. And that brings me to the point that he's not a very competent politician. Mm -hmm. And that suggests to me that once Trump is out of office, the basis of his support is not just going to disappear. Mm -hmm. There will continue to be a large segment of the population that is disaffected with institutions and elites and that holds deeply ethno-nationalist views. And you can imagine a candidate coming along who is as skillful as Trump at campaigning, but much more skillful than Trump in governance, yeah. and then we'll have to see how American democracy fares, you know, whether Trump is here or not, and what happens after he is gone is very much something that will be shaped by ethnonationalism and populism as analytical concepts and belief systems and forms of political claims making.
0: You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Bart Bonikowski from Harvard University and Neta Magbule from the University of Toronto. Among Martin Bart's many papers, he wrote Varieties of American Popular Nationalism in the American Sociological Review with Paul DiMaggio. We're on the web, sociocast.org annex, on Twitter, at SochAnnex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno, On behalf of Nenna I'm Joe Cohen. Thank you for listening.